This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I want to start the talk by um, sharing some work that has taken about a decade to develop, and I'm really excited to share it with you. And it's also fits in very nicely with the hamburger lecture, and it's my honor to present this data. So I'd like to start with a case that I think a lot of you have seen in clinic where you have a six-year-old male who comes in with asthma, rhinitis, and peanut allergy. He has symptoms all year long, and they're actually present both at home and school, and they seem to be a lot worse since he's been starting a new school. They also improve when he goes away for family vacation. They have some family history with allergies. They live in an inner-city high-rise apartment in Boston, um, and they have no pets or smokers in the home. So I'd like to start by reviewing what do we really know about home allergen exposure and asthma morbidity in children. In 1997, there was a landmark study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that was the first to identify that home environments were important in inner-city asthma and explained a lot of the reason why maybe there were a lot of disparities. This study identified in about 800 children across the country that if you were exposed and allergic to cockroach, you had much more asthma morbidity and really focused a a couple of decades of work focusing on the home environment. When I was a fellow at Hopkins, I had the opportunity under mentorship of Bob Wood and Peyton Eggleston to look again at this cohort and look at their dust samples. And we identified in 2000 for the first time that mouse allergen was also an important inner city um, environmental exposure and that if you were allergic and exposed to mouse allergen, you also had increased asthma morbidity. More recently, we have conducted a large study in Boston and Baltimore where we're looking at inner-city homes and children who are allergic and exposed to asthma. And again, this just got published this month in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, that if you are allergic and exposed to mice, the red lines show that you actually have much more asthma severity and actually, actually a greater decline in lung function. And so this work has just really stemmed that there should be a lot of focus in the home environments and understanding unique exposures in inner-city environments and how they affect asthma and affect disparities. The follow-up study to the New England Journal article on cockroach in 2004 was another landmark study that identified, okay, we know the home is important, but can we do anything about it? This study identified that if you actually intervene in the home, you could significantly improve asthma morbidity, as you can see, compared to the control homes. The other interesting thing of this study is that even after you stop the intervention, the effects remain. And it was, again, just highlighting how important the home environment is and stemmed a boatload of research focusing on the home environment and doing interventions to improve asthma morbidity. More recently, in about 2010, since Back at Hopkins, when we first identified that mouse was important, we started identifying if there was targeted strategies that we could do. We saw from that other study I showed that a multifaceted intervention to cockroach and dust mite improved asthma morbidity. 
We wanted to test the hypothesis that maybe if we did a targeted intervention in those kids that I see that are mouse allergic and exposed to mouse allergen, could we make a difference? So through pilot funding in Boston, where we showed that we could decrease mouse allergen, we did then get funded to do a large intervention trial. We're basically doing the same thing as that New England Journal study I showed you, except we're targeting just a mouse-targeted intervention, where we actually go into the homes and do integrated pest management and clean up the homes. Half of the kids get control, half of the kids get intervention, and we follow their health outcomes. We have randomized 350 children from that study in two centers, in Baltimore and Boston, and the results are going to be presented at the 2017 um, American Academy of Allergy in Atlanta. So stay tuned for those results. But we have finished that analysis. So I looked in the literature, and you know, we've been doing since, the, since my fellowship, um, back when I started in Boston, that there was a ton of work done in the homes. But I noticed in the literature that there was one area where nearly every child is actually required to spend the majority of his or her day. I view the school as a child's required occupation. And there was actually a paucity of information evaluating, comprehensively evaluating the school environment, adjusting for all the exposures in the home. And so I was told it might be nearly impossible to get into the schools. But through a lot of amazing community relationships and working with the school officials and principals and nurses, we were able to show the NIH that we could actually do this. And we got funded by an R01, which I proudly call the School Inner City Asthma Study. And this was one of the first studies, particularly in the United States, where we actually could comprehensively evaluate the school environment adjusting for environments in the home. It had never been done before. I'll take a couple of slides to share what we do annually in the school inner city asthma study. Every spring, I recruit about eight to 10 schools in the Northeast, and we invite them to participate in the study. And in the spring, we distribute screening surveys to the entire schools. It doesn't matter whether they have asthma or allergies, but we collect literally a couple, about 1,000 screening surveys from these 8 to 10 schools. From those screening surveys that are well-validated to identify children with asthma, we then bring them into clinic, and we do a very carefully phenotyped clinical assessment where we do a survey, spirometry, skin testing, blood, and nasal sampling. We then follow these children throughout the academic school year while they're in school. So we have a baseline assessment when they're not in school, and then we follow them through the year. We get very exquisite classroom sampling linked to the child's home classroom, adjusting for exposure in the home. We also follow up in school, actually, and do spirometry testing linked to our sampling so that we can get a measure of objective lung function while we get the sampling as well. We also do FEO and nasal sampling throughout the academic school year. After they finish the school year, these kids rotate out, and I again repeat the cycle the next year. I go to eight to ten more new schools and do the same thing, so that, as you can see, by the end of the four- to five-year recruitment period, we have a group of 350 children from 40 schools, each having an exquisitely phenotyped classroom exposure 
home exposure and health outcomes throughout the academic school year. This is just a sample of a flyer that we distribute um, in front of the surveys that we hand out to the students. The staff, it used to be me before I had funding, we'd go out and give presentations to get the kids excited, and they would take the flyers home with the survey to their parents to fill out the survey at home and bring it back. We then collected them at schools. This is a sample of the survey. We can only do one page. No one's going to fill out more than a page. And it asks about asthma and allergies, of course food allergies, I'm an allergist as well, and asks about simple things in the environment. It's in English on one side and on Spanish in the other. And my staff are bilingual in Spanish. I'm sure that's important here in San Diego as well. And um, we learned a lot. We first started out giving little toys and trinkets to try to get the kids back. We couldn't pay everyone to give them. These are thousands of surveys. I don't want to use all my budget in just getting the surveys back. But we quickly learned that there was one technique that really helped get about 90% of the surveys back. It started out with 50%, but then we went up to 90%. What do you think? That's what got it. So we used to always provide pizza parties to the classrooms that returned the most surveys. This is just what we do for those of you who aren't allergists. We do allergy skin testing. It's clearly done in the clinic. We can't do this kind of stuff in the school. It's done in the summer, and it's done to the usual routine allergens, just like the other inner-city home studies. We are really doing a very similar study, but we're carefully studying the school environment. We send the dust samples to all the same allergens that we test for in very carefully characterized manner, looking for the common allergens such as cockroach, dust mite, cat, dog, mouse, rat, and mold. In addition, we are funded to do exquisite mold sampling as well, where we actually bring in what we call Burkhardt spore samplers, and actually mold certified specialists read the mold and identify the level of mold in the classroom as well. Now, the school study was not only funded, it was an NIAID-funded study just for allergens and mold. But while we were there, we thought it was such a unique opportunity to also evaluate school uh, air pollution as well, because allergy might just target the kids who are allergic. So we did partner with the School of Public Health, and we actually bring in boxes that have particulate model sampling, NO2 badges, which is the little white badge, and we get exquisite phenotypic uh, particulate matter and air pollution data from the classrooms as well. So just to give you an idea of the scope and the magnitude of work that was involved in this study. So it's me who recruits the schools. I can't really send staff to go talk to the schools. It's got to be me. And we ask them to sign up for the study. And when we do, we explain it to them. And then this is what it involves. We bring to our visits, when we go to the schools for the sampling, eight air samplers. We bring two to three, four vacuums, dust samplers, four Burkhardt samplers, eight pollution particle box samplers, eight NO2 samplers, at least three to four staff, and a couple of cars. I almost joked one time that maybe I should put in my next NIH budget to really get a van or something and like just kind of use it and put on there, you know, this is a school study van because the equipment just got so much to bring into the school. And believe it or not, we have had amazing community relationships. As you imagine, this is not something you develop in a day. You develop this over time. And they have been very welcoming to understanding the school environment because they've really sold it as that we're trying to help them. And all they ask 
is please don't come during Massachusetts state testing, please. I don't know if any of you are from Massachusetts, but they live by the, te- the, the listing of the ranking of how the kids do. And so there's, we always know that we have the MCAS, is what we call calendar. And the staff now, yeah, don't bother the schools and don't call the principals during those couple of weeks in May when all the kids are supposed to be really focused on taking the exams. So we do the health outcomes in the school during the school year, and they give us 10 minutes. I mean, how much more are they going to give us? They need to sit in the classroom all day in school. So this is what we do in 10 minutes. We get spirometry. We work with the nurses. We usually do it during lunch because we don't want to take them out of any classrooms. We do FENO, and we do uh, a spirometry PICO, and we actually do a nasal swab as well. This is the characteristics of the cohort of the first phase of the study. We recruited 353 children. Most half of them were male. There was a whopping 4.8% that identified them as white. This is a minority population. This is um, a mostly black and Hispanic population. And nearly all the children came from families with low household incomes. We had a significant proportion that had food allergy as well and family history of asthma. But this is really an inner city population. So what did we find? So you remember one of my first fellow projects we identified that was mouse was important. And so when we looked into the schools, I really just thought, hey, you know, I'm an allergist. We just want to look at all the different allergens. But consistently, there's one allergen that keeps following me through my career, so I'm still stuck following this allergen. And as you can see from the data, it's consistently been shown that these children are sitting in classrooms where there are much higher levels of mouse allergen as compared to mouse allergen in their homes. And here I have been doing all this work in the homes and identifying that it was important. Whoa, the classroom allergens were 10 times higher, as you can see from the orange bars, compared to the home. We saw a little bit of cat and dog. Now, cat and dog is generally not allowed in the school, but it's probably brought in from their clothes. Clearly, it's higher in the homes. And the orange bar show there's not a lot of dust mite. Most of the schools in Boston have hardwood floors. And we did not find any cockroach. Even though the initial landmark studies had identified that cockroach was that important allergen, at least in Boston, in these schools and in these homes, we had not found it nearly as important or prevalent as mouse. So we found that mouse was important in our schools. What about health effects? That's the most important thing of this study because it's almost, people can collect dust samples from different areas, but to be able to link them with the children is a whole other level of complexity and community buy-in. So these are our results, and they were just published in JAMA Pediatrics this month. And so we found that of all the allergens that we looked at, the most important allergen was, again, my favorite allergen, the mouse allergen. So you can see from this figure that is also published in JAMA Ped that there's a clear dose-response relationship between increasing classroom mouse allergen levels and asthma symptoms. And this is adjusting for all the things that you usually adjust for. People ask about BMI, income, race, all those things. It really was the mouse allergen exposure that increased asthma symptoms and adjusting for home exposure as well. Correspondingly, and actually if you look at a lot of the clinical trials that I've been involved with, 
We don't always find in kids that corresponding decline in lung function because a lot of times kids have you know preserved lung function. But because we had the sampling linked at around the same time that we were doing the spirometry in the schools, we actually saw a very nice signal. My hypothesis worked that actually if you have increasing levels of mouse allergen in the classrooms, you have a sharp decline in lung function as well. So there's a lot of more data being worked on with some of the fellows, but I'm not going to show any unpublished data um, at this time. But of course, we are looking at the pollution data. And stay tuned. There's some papers being in the works that we're going to be submitting to identify weather air pollution. Because I think that's important as well, because that probably affects all the kids, whether they are allergic or not. Our lab helped design, when we started to get this work out, the cover of the article, uh, of the cover in Jackie. And it just kind of really nicely summarizes what's going on, what we have found in the schools. You got your girl walking in with a backpack into school, and she's bringing the dog and cat allergens from home. And she's walking into the classroom, and the classroom has all those allergens right in the classroom. Now, it was interesting because we just consulted. You know, they picked the girl. You know, some might tell me, you know, um, they picked this cover. But the first draft that they had when they were looking at her data, they had the girl walking in with a hazmat suit. And I was like, I think that's a little bit uh, overkill on this. We do know that there is mouse allergen in the school environment, but I don't think it's to the point where people need to wear masks and things like that. So our findings highlight the importance of the school environment in asthma morbidity, adjusting for exposure in the home. But in all the work that we do, I don't want to just find out risk factors. I want to do something about them. I want to do an intervention. So is it possible in a school environment to actually intervene? I've learned a lot from all of our work in the home studies where we're actually doing integrated pest management. We have science-trained integrated pest management, and they teach me all about biology of mice. They taught me that mice are incontinent, so actually every time we go to the schools, we actually do see signs of mice droppings. Um, we find that they love food, and they love, you know, they, their playground is trash and clutter. But the most interesting thing I found, this, one of the pest management showed in our training when we were training the staff, is that think of the potential of stopping just one mouse. Because in January, you've got one mouse, and they multiply. Then in May, those mice all multiply, and there are 40 mice. Then in September, all those multiply, and there's 650 mice. And by the end of one year, you've got 4,500 mice. So I was thinking, if schools have a problem with mouse, think of what we could do by potentially intervening in the school environment using many of the same strategies that we are doing in the home. So this is a study that just also came out online this month in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and Practice, where we actually to tr try to show that we could get funding for the second phase of the study. And you know, the NIH is not going to fund you unless you show you can do this work. So we had a little bit of pilot funding. It was a little bit from ALA and from the Academy, just a shoestring budget. But we did exactly what we had been doing in the first phase of the study, but now employing an intervention. 
And remember when I showed the slide that you needed three to four staff and a couple of cars? Well, when you add an intervention, such as HEPA filters in the classrooms, then I really started thinking, I do justify the van, because it has a lot more equipment involved. But what we did is we did the exact same thing like what I mentioned, but this time we get sampling in a short window at the beginning of the school year in September to get baseline sampling. And then we deploy the intervention, which is half of the classrooms get HEPA filters and half of the classrooms get sham. And we didn't have enough money to do an extensive integrated pest manage, but we did a little bit of a partial one as well. We just did it for a year. We only got 25 kids, only from three schools, but we wanted to show that we could actually do it, that the schools would allow us to do it, that I could fit the equipment in the car and get the sampling done in September, um, and those kinds of things. So we were pleased to see that in our shoestring budget pilot, we were able, with the sham HEPA filters versus the active HEPA filters, that we were able, in a school setting with kids running in and out and opening and closing doors and tracking in junk from, from outside, that we were able to significantly reduce pollution particulate matter in the active HEPA filter classrooms compared to the sham control. And our hypothesis is also that the particulate matter and the allergens all follow on the same particles. And so we hypothesize that we'll be able to reduce the allergens, the mold particles that are in the air that we found in the first phase of the study, and also the pollutant, particulate pollutants as well through the HEPA filter in, uh, intervention. Of course, we're also going to do the integrated pest management as well because we found that mouse was so important in the first phase of the study. So we identified that we could do it in our pilot study. And so then I'm happy to say that we were able to convince the NIH to what I proudly call SICKS2, the school inner city asthma intervention study. And as you can see from the schema, it looks very familiar, right? It's exactly what we've been doing in the first phase of the study. The main difference is we need a little bigger car, we need a few more staff, the study's got a bigger budget because we're now deploying an intervention. So in the fall, prior to randomization, we have a very short window. In the first phase, we could kind of do it throughout the academic school year. We did our sampling. But in the month of September, we need to get more equipment to be able to get all of the sampling done prior to deploying the intervention. And then half the classrooms get sham, half of them get active, and then half the schools get integrated pest management, and half of them will not. And we are currently now in year two of the study doing the exact same three thing. We've gone to about 15 schools, and we've recruited about 120 children. And in a few more years, I hope to be able to come back and share you the results of the study that we will have from 300 children from 40 different schools in SICKS2. So I'm an allergist. So, you know, I focus mostly on asthma. Most of my work is on asthma, but we're in the schools. And, you know, food allergy is such a big part of our practice. So, of course, I have to think about food allergy while I'm asking all these and, and learning about all these kids in the classroom. So I'm getting all this environmental sampling anyway. So could it be possible that environmental food exposure would actually have anything to do with asthma or food allergy or morbidity in established disease and even in disease development? 
know, we have this amazing opportunity now that we've got all the sampling from the schools. So this isn't my idea. This is more that's been thought of by Gideon Lack. Um, and he published an article in the New England Journal that hypothesized that some of the reason for the increase in peanut allergy, epidemic almost, is that you've got your allergic kids who have eczema and broken skin, and they're exposed cutaneously through the environment, allergen exposure or peanut allergen, and they actually become sensitized because we've been telling them to avoid it orally. So something maybe have to, has to do with the mechanisms of oral introduction that promotes tolerance. And because we had been telling families to delay the exposure, they've been getting exposed through their skin prior to oral exposure. And I don't have time to go through all of Gideon Lack's studies, but I think a lot of you have probably heard some of the buzz out of now that they're now recommending that possibly early oral exposure to peanut might be important. The same group with Gideon Lack's group also has done a lot of work in homes. There have been a boatload of studies in homes, so they can get all kinds of home study samples. So Helen Burrow is the first author, and um, she published this data that identified that actually home environmental peanut exposure actually increases your risk for peanut allergy and really increases if you have a history of eczema. And so, of course, we've reached out to them, and uh, they're very enthusiastic about collaborating with us because nobody has these amazing school samples linked to phenotype clinical outcomes. We also get table wipes as well. And one of my junior faculty, who was my first fellow and now has been working with me for about 10 years or so, got a K award to look at peanut allergen in the environment. And we can correlate that with the home environment dust samples and identify maybe, does it have anything to do with morbidity? Does it have anything to do with asthma? And I'm not presenting any of the unpublished data, but we are finding a lot of peanut allergen exposure in the school environment, higher levels than we have been seeing in the home. And he did present some of this data in the European Allergy Society, and we have a paper that is being submitted that will describe some of the findings, at least the preliminary findings, So stay tuned that we might, in the future, further understand the relationship or between food allergen exposure in public settings and how they might affect disease. Another thing that we are also interested in as well is in peanut-free policies. And a paper was just accepted in Jackie just actually yesterday, I just got the email, that relates to bullying and peanut-free policies in schools and how they relate to EpiPen use. And so she she would like to look at potentially understanding, is the exposure, does it matter? Do peanut-free policies even affect the actual exposure? Is it worth it? Does it affect health outcomes? Can this affect policy? So again, stay tuned for this amazing opportunity, which has really been built from a decade of community relationships. So in that light, does early environmental exposure help or hurt? This is one of my, my fellows actually on maternity leave had sent this picture in. And they have several cats. And so we're wondering, you know, am I preventing cat allergy by really giving a hefty dose in infancy? So this study actually just came out this last month um, by Matt Personality's group in New York. And it does identify 
that possibly exposure, we don't really know. There's been a lot of mixed studies, understanding. But they do identify that allergen-specific IgE really increases your risk of severity and that, that most of it was related to lots of exposure to the allergen. The interesting thing I saw, though, in this study was that like at least half of them were not pet owners. So they had a lot of exposure, and they developed IgE, and they had more asthma severity, but they're getting exposed in other areas outside of the home. So given what we've seen in the school study, it is quite possible that it's not necessarily that doing what my fellow is doing is the way to go about it. And she was wondering if she's preventing, but some of the data shows that maybe it makes it worse. So it's really hard to know. I think the jury is out. But I think we will have opportunities to really understand exposure early on in life and how it affects future asthma and allergic diseases. And so, of course, now we have been extending our relationships into preschools. And so we go into the Head Start programs and been doing table wipes and dust samples. And this is one of the fellows from Thailand came and worked with me for a year, and we published this in Allergy last year where we took our table wipes and, again, ran them for allergens from the preschools. We actually found a lot of endotoxin as well and different types of exposures. But, again, I wasn't sure if I was going to do all the allergens, but, again, on the tables that our children are in preschool have really high levels of, again, my favorite allergens. And we didn't see much cockroach, so they don't like to hang out at the tables. Maybe they, you know, eat some of the scraps and stuff left from the kids. Who knows? So stay tuned. I think there's a lot to learn, and I think we have a lot of exciting uh, data, hopefully, to come in the near future. So the school's inner-city asthma study focused on the importance of the environment adjusting for the home. I'm just going to share a couple of slides, because I want to have time for questions some other things we've identified that are important from the school inner city asthma surveys. This was a study that was published just last year with one of my fellows who now moved back to Canada, looking at neighborhoods and stress related to neighborhoods. And we basically asked them, do you guys feel safe in your neighborhood? These are inner city kids. And believe it or not, even in our, some of our, the years when we've gone to some of the schools, they would tell us, you know, now is not a good time because we're dealing with one of the kids in school's brother just got shot and he saw him in his neighborhood. So violence and those kinds of things are really something to think about in asthma disparities. And that I feel that we, it's a team. I, most of our work now is team science where we get not just the allergists doing their own thing, but partnering now with the psychologists and understanding ways that we can help decrease the stress that comes from living in unsafe neighborhoods where the kids can't go outside to play and how much this significantly affects their asthma morbidity. We also looked at uh, another problem that's actually universal, but really a problem in inner city asthma because of the disparities in that minority families sometimes just feel like the medications don't work. And so this we looked at the percentages of the parents that we asked that they said, you know, I just don't think that they work. I'm going to try alternative medications. Or they don't, a lack of trust. Or those kinds of things. And so this was uh, just to highlight again that we need to think about other factors. I think the environment is important, but also adherence. And how did the families feel that the medications work? It's just one of the biggest challenges, I think, in asthma 
is that maybe much of asthma would go away if we could just get the families to take their medication. And so we are working on strategies as well to consider school-based management. Perhaps maybe if we empower the nurses or some of the community workers to help give the inhalers, to help give the maintenance medications, we can maybe make a difference in that way as well. I've also been interested as well in ways to tap in to the inner city environment, especially the adolescents, through other ways to get them to take their meds. This is just looking like, I mean, it's not my daughter, but this is my, she plays basketball and she is always on that iPhone. And from what I've seen in the data is that iPhones are nearly 100% penetration, even in inner city environments. Not everybody has internet because it's kind of expensive, but everyone's got smartphones. So one of the fellows and I have done a pilot project looking at one of those You know, there's many of them out there. I know some of you in the audience might have been, you know, looking at some of these new apps and adherence devices. But it has been identified that many of these might be some of the most effective strategies to reach out to the adolescents, to the kids who are probably the worst about taking their medications. So stay tuned. I think there's a lot of exciting data with the new technology coming out as well. So back to our case. We've got our six-year-old. He's got peanut allergy, he's got rhinitis, he's got problems in school. So I think most of the work that I've shown has helped us remember how important it is to not only remember the home environment, but to consider the school environment and to consider targeting community-driven initiatives to make a difference. So I'm just going to take a couple sites. Last night, I know there probably wasn't many who came to the Allergy Society meeting, but I had a whole lecture on another area that I'm very passionate about, which is prevention. And I know it does fit in with Lamberger stuff as well. So I'm going to just do a couple of slides that we know that we've been working a lot on community-based environmental interventions to treat asthma who've already had established disease. But what about prevention? And I want to um, tell you about a really exciting study that I'm starting to lead that actually does target it in the environment, but in a very, very specific way. Those of you who, um, I think most of you are pediatricians, right? So you see allergy all the time, right? And I just want to remind you of the allergic march. And then in general, you're going to see those little babies that come into your clinic that have food allergy and eczema. And then it's really later on in life that they go on to develop asthma and rhinitis. They might start developing those little allergies. But as you can see, that atopic march for asthma particularly explodes after the preschool age. I want to remind those of you the most important factor in the allergic march and that most of the data identify that the most significant risk factor for persistent disease is being allergic early on in life and actually being allergic prior to having those viral colds and wheezes. And so this is just highlighting what's most critical in that pathway of allergic persistent asthma. You've got your ragweed allergen that hooks to IgE and binds to the mast cell. And the mast cell releases all these mediators that do everything that you and I see in allergic reactions, such as the wheezing and the smooth muscle contraction and the increased vascular permeability. So I hypothesize that potentially blocking something that is so important in the allergic asthma pathway could potentially prevent disease. 
I don't have time to go through all the data and the studies, but this just summarizes what we've learned about something that is available already in humans to use in children down to age six for asthma, but has never really been studied to prevent allergic disease. This cartoon shows that anti-IgE, or Zolaire, or omalizumab actually blocks the response to exposure to allergen. You see that it blocks, in this case, the cockroach allergen response to the exposure. So we're, again, we're really targeting the environment by blocking IgE. They're sitting around in school with the mouse infestation, but they don't have IgE to respond. We've also had a surprise data from the Zolaire studies that it actually works on viruses as well. I wouldn't have expected Zolaire to do anything, but there's data that shows it restores antiviral responses. And all of you who, who see kids know it's not just allergy, but it's those viral triggers that are so important in asthma exacerbations. And so an agent like this, it's big guns. I know it's, it's a very, you know, high-risk study, but something like this that could block IgE, which is important in allergy, and restore antiviral responses and actually reduce those recurrent early exacerbations potentially we might be able to modify the progression to severe persistent asthma in children if we treat it early. And we might even actually be able to modify the whole allergic march, which includes food allergy, eczema, and allergic rhinitis. So I'm happy to say that actually it's been, again, almost not quite as long as the work I've been doing in the school, but about as long at least about seven, eight years, working with the people who make Solar, working with the FDA, working with the naysayers, working with other investigators who don't really think we could do this. But we are now funded by the NIH, and I'm really happy and excited to say I'm going to be leading a study I've been thinking about for many, many years, which is what I finally call uh, Controlling and Preventing Asthma Progression and Severity in Kids. Um, and its acronym is CASC. We are going to be treating allergic toddlers. We have an IND down to age two that come into your clinic that mom asks, what are my chances of developing asthma? Is there anything I can do about it? Am I gonna have more food allergies? Am I gonna have more this and that? Those kids that I smell are going down the path are the ones we're gonna target. Our birth cohort studies show that this phenotype has a 60% chance or so of developing persistent asthma. And these are the kids that we want to treat for two years with anti-IgE. Half of the group will be placebo-controlled, and then we will follow them for two years off of therapy to identify if we have any sustained improvement on the, the, de the development of asthma. We have a very carefully phenotyped definition of asthma, and as a co-primary, actually, we are going to look at asthma severity as well. So that maybe we could, at, at minimum, I call it the home run would be just to modify asthma severity, just to make it less severe. Those of you who are thinking about those biologics and severe asthma and those bad kids who are on prednisone, if we could shift that curve for asthma severity, that's a home run. If we could prevent asthma, that's the home run with everyone on base. 
So stay tuned for the next uh, seven years or so. I hope that we will have the study completed and I'll be able to share that whatever we find, we will learn so much about what happens to a developing immune system where you're blocking IgE and understanding what it does to the development of the allergic march. So what I want you to remember, I hope I made it clear, the school is important. We can intervene in the school, stay tuned. Hopefully we can make a difference that maybe could improve funding for policymakers to help improve resources to get rid of the past, to improve the air filtration in schools. I love the school's environment studies because we can make a difference in communities of children as opposed to individuals in a home. The future impact could be great. It could be cost-effective. It could help all the kids sitting in the classroom. So, of course, we're asking some questions about those kids who don't have asthma as well. And, of course, the teachers. They're not as compliant about filling the surveys. But we want to know. It's, it's, it's an occupation for them. And maybe we can make a difference and help a community of individuals. And I'm also excited, too, about the early intervention and prevention studies that are upcoming next as well. So stay tuned. I think we are going to be making some major advances in our field in the next decade. And I'm honored and privileged to be a part of those ventures. So I do all this work by myself. Not. I am so fortunate to be in a place where I have amazing collaborators and a team of individuals that have worked with me for nearly a decade. I have senior folks that, they were my mentors, but now they call me their collaborators. They help me with trial design. They help me with understanding all those crazy things about environmental exposures. My strength is the community. I go out to the community and I rally the people. I get the groups to come together. I get the staff. That's my strength. But we have people who help with the stats, help with the genetics, help with all the biologics, help with the mechanisms. And then I'm really fortunate to have a team of outstanding junior investigators and fellows that kind of gravitate. And through the win-win collaboration, they are able to get K awards and training awards. And we really have a team of staff and doctors that work together as really, I feel like, a family to get this work done. They have many side things that we can get. One's looking at sleep, some are looking at food allergy, some are looking at pollution, one just got one looking at obesity. So as you can imagine, it extends to a lot of amazing information that we can have. And I can't do this by myself, and I clearly can't write all the papers by myself. So I'm really grateful to have this team. But most importantly, of course, I would like to thank the community. Without them, this work is dead. There's nothing, I cannot make a new mouse to fit this project. I can't just come up with these, this data. So the community and the champions that I have, the medical director, the facilities management, the teachers, the principals, the families, those are the ones that make this happen, and those are the ones I can't thank enough. And of course, I can't forget I gotta thank the funders. I gotta thank the NIH, because I can't do this myself. When I started, I didn't have funding, and I did a lot of stuff by myself, little things. But now that we've got this team, it's just incredible how much more you can get done. And very few people do a lot of stuff for you for free. Some of them will do a lot of things for me for free. But thanks to the funders and the supporters that have helped make this happen.
Thank you very much, and I'd be happy to take any questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.